0: You're listening to Making Our Way, a podcast where we have conversations about some of the toughest and best moments in life, a place where we get a chance to hear from people who are creating a way forward in spite of and sometimes because of the struggles they face. This is a place for connection, to gain strength from each other. We are each other's keepers, and we can also be each other's teachers. We are better together. I'm your host, Marisa Penrod. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode one of season two of Making Our Way. We have got so much great stuff planned for this second season. I am excited to get started. So today we're talking with Adam Hill, Dr. Adam Hill. I stumbled across a tweet of his several years ago, and I just loved his compassion and the way he advocated for himself and his peers in the medical community. So when his book came out a couple of years ago, I ordered an advanced copy as soon as I could. And when I started this podcast earlier this year, he was on my short list, my very short list of favorite people I would love to have a conversation with. We've been conditioned to think that people like doctors and teachers and counselors and first responders are the helpers, and they are, but there's more behind the professional title, in the case of doctors, behind the white coat. For me, I see doctors as problem solvers. The medical field at its core is to help people, but what do medical professionals do when they need to leave the title at the door and be vulnerable with their own struggles? Adam has battled anxiety and depression and alcoholism. There were even times in his life when he had an active suicide plan. He talks about, from a very young age, being an outsider, being shy and introverted, and even being bullied as a child. Even though he was an accomplished high school and college athlete, and he made his way through medical school successfully, he was crumbling under the weight of his struggles. Adam talks with me today about his recovery, about being a work in progress, and about how he found his way to his calling as a pediatric palliative care doctor. And he shares with an incredibly open heart about his first mentor, a little girl who taught him the power of showing up. Adam today is humbly continuing on his own ongoing journey with health and peace while he helps patients and their families do the same. He who needed help himself is now the most profound kind of helper. I think he'll change you today when you listen to this. I am so glad that he said yes when I asked him to be here on Making Our Way. What a gift it is to spend this time with him. So, Adam, welcome. I'm so glad to have you here with us today.
1: Yeah, pleasure to be with you. Thank you.
0: I just said Adam. Now, a lot of people will call you Dr. Hill. You have credentials, qualifications, multiple degrees, but in your own book, the very first words you put in the preface, you say my name is Adam. And then you say you're a human being. And then you say you're a husband and a father. And it's after that, you say you're a physician. And you describe yourself in different ways. And I think that's how I want to start us today, by you introducing yourself to us and telling everybody listening, who is Adam?
1: Well, I appreciate that introduction and the truth is I'm in my fourth decade of life and and still seeking and searching to find that out. I'm a work in progress uh, every single day. And so um, I aspire to be a, a great husband and, and father and a healthy man in sobriety and in recovery. I really hope to be able to use that in a way that connects uh, and serves the patients and families that have the privilege of working with on a daily basis. You know, they use pieces of my story as a part of the empathic well to compassionately give to patients. And so I falter, I fail, I fall, I try to get back up and try all over again the next day. But I still think I'm I'm searching and seeking as well to, really find out who I am and that also fuels and drives me every day.
0: So you've done something really interesting in your book. You've really pulled back the curtain a little bit on on a life, your own life, and on a profession that really I think historically has seemed to be almost beyond reproach in terms of how we view doctors as incredibly knowledgeable, you've got it all together, you have all the answers, and you sort of shred that curtain. I mean, you leave no question that doctors are people. One of the things, Adam, that struck me when I was reading some things that you've you've written was I think we all have perceptions about mental health and in particular about suicide. And I think if we surveyed 100 people on the street or we asked anybody listening today, where do you think in what profession the highest rate of suicide is? I think people would probably default to first responders or police officers or teachers. It's actually not any of those, right?
1: Yeah, you know, and in the context that those professions in our American culture at large also has been in a, a mental health crisis and elevated significantly in the last two years. And so it strikes me, too, that the rates in the medical profession are also significantly higher than some of our veterans. I hope that one small silver lining out of last year, at least in this pandemic, was that there was a lot more attention being paid to, to this and the crisis in nursing and, and physicians and all healthcare workers that really showed a little bit more behind the scenes of what people are going through and I don't think we've done enough to highlight the significant PTSD and long-lasting ramifications all of this will have.
0: I agree. And, and you're right. So I'm going to go back to pre-COVID and actually pre-Dr. Hill to a long time ago as a, a young boy. Did you always want to be a doctor?
1: I, I had this conceptualization that I wanted to work in a in a giving career one that I would be able to work with youth or young adults. And so my my father being a mental health therapist for children and adolescents was formative to me, but also my entire family works in education. So I just felt that call for a sort of civic duty and responsibility and having a profession where I could give back. So I had that long before I had this formal idea that that would come in the vehicle of medicine or being a physician. But I do think that still came relatively early, maybe in my middle school, early high school years, where I really thought that that's where I wanted to be.
0: It's interesting. My dad was a history teacher for 35 years. I come from a family of educators, and I can relate to that. It's like in your DNA. It's just how your family culture is, right? It's just doing good and helping people. But you also, Adam, at a young age, in addition to wanting to help people, You were starting to experience anxiety and feeling some difficulty with some mental health. Can you tell us a little bit about some of that?
1: I think a lot of it stemmed initially from me just having this sense of not fitting in or just feeling comfortable in my Surroundings, I carried these labels like mama's boy, which was one that was projected onto me, or just difficulty with assimilating into the classroom environment. And I really struggled. And then it manifested quite physically into being an outsider and bullied and then treated differently because I was a shy, introverted kid. And I really struggled in that. And so it was a a lot of social anxiety early on in my youth. Which I masked or eventually, I think, compartmentalized with overachieving. And so high functioning in academic achievement or in athletics to sort of seek out that attention and praise. And I was rewarded for such things, although on the inside I still felt deeply uh, insecure. That's so
0: Interesting and such a critical point you make because when we talk about mental health, we still, I think, focus on the exterior vision of what we see in people. We look at this young boy to a young man in college. You're academically successful. You're on track to go to med school. You are playing sports, and yet you were silently suffering. I think that's incredibly important for people to just pause and think about who do we know that doesn't look like they're suffering and really might be?
1: Yeah, it's a powerful point. And especially for me, eventually when I was in active addiction too, I spent so much time and attention trying to hide. Mm -hmm. And so I had these coping mechanisms of just protecting myself away from people uncovering what I was really struggling with. And so some of it is adaptive and trying to just survive and move forward into the next thing. But it always reminds me that we never really know what somebody is going through underneath. And yeah. to me, it's given me a different sense of humility and the work that I do because mm-hmm. of having that experience myself.
0: When we talk about that experience in college, your addiction, as you call it, active addiction, really started to escalate, if I'm remembering correctly, from the chapter in your book, really when, when med school started. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. I mean, hindsight is 2020, 20, and you know I've spent years in in addiction recovery and self acknowledging that I always had these addictive behaviors and and never really drank in a way like other people did, including from the time I was 14 and had a, my first drink. I, I drank in a way in college that was binge drinking, but it was so few and far between because I kept myself busy with two jobs and pre med and double major that. I didn't have the same like life consequences or repercussions that gave me the clarity that I really had this addiction. So to your point, it was really sort of then in medical school, it became really clear. And I really was relying on alcohol as my sole coping mechanism to get through another day. And and that's really when it became readily clear that I was struggling with alcoholism.
0: So Adam, take us into that a little bit. When you talk about relying on it to cope and it became apparent you were struggling. What did that look like?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it was building up to some of the things that we're talking about, this social anxiety, never fitting in, this awkwardness, this deep sense of insecurity, this feeling like an imposter now in a world where I was practicing medicine at Duke University and this little kid from the cornfields of Southern Indiana who never felt like he was good enough. And it was just this collision of who I thought I really was and, you know, what I was doing. And then throw on top of that a decade of, you know, working in medicine and being exposed to trauma and that the weight of that significantly weighed me down. I was also newly married, which was also just a big life change. And it was just a culmination of a lot of those external events. and my own internal character defects of being a man living in, in alcohol recovery. I could go home from work, do really difficult, hard things. I could talk to a 14-year-old and their parents about their cancer relapsing. And then I had to have some mechanism to shut it off. And so for me, that manifested as having a couple drinks every night so I could fall asleep at night. and what eventually turned into you know, a fifth of vodka, just to be able to sleep. And that's really the depths of then when depression as a coexisting condition and drinking every day you know, it took me to some really dark places.
0: I know I personally think of a doctor as having access to all the best care, right? I mean, you're in a medical setting every single day. And so it seems counterintuitive that you struggled to get care, you struggled to get help. So Tell us a little bit about that dynamic of when the healer needs healing, why isn't that so readily accessible in the medical profession?
1: Struggling to get help starts with uh, self-acknowledgement that you need help yourself. And I was so deep in denial and just, I was just incredibly sick. It took external forces and and mainly my wife to help bring me to the point that I even had a basic level of self-awareness of what I was really struggling with. Initially, it was about just taking a a moment to pause and collect and be able to self-reflect that, like, yeah, I really do need some help. On the back end of that, though, is there is a significant stigma in our culture at large about seeking help for mental health or addiction conditions, but even more so at times it seems in the medical profession ourselves where we put them in boxes and and often have ascribed punishment to seeking help for mental health or addiction that if you apply for a job or you move to a new state and have to get a, a medical license that they would historically ask you those questions and If you asked yes, then you were funneled into a whole different pathway of whether or not you could be credentialed or those processes have started to improve over time. And part of my work has been to work in that space and to be an advocate for change. But that barrier of stigma is still an incredible one that's hard for a lot of people to surmount.
0: There are two things I've heard you say frequently in, in your writings and, and also in your social media, and it it's stigma and it's shame related to mental health. And those things lead me to think that people are afraid. They're afraid of what they can't see. They're afraid of the unknowns of mental health. Why do you think that there's still a stigma? And what do you think we're really afraid of?
1: Hmm. It's a great question. Whether it's mental health or race, religion, uh, ethnicity, if it's even the the careers or jobs that we go into. I think that there's this default in human nature at times to try to put people into boxes to make it easier to understand and then to make assumptions about that individual so that we don't have to spend time doing the deep, hard, self-reflective work and time-consuming work of actually listening and learning about another person's perspective and what it may teach us about ourselves.
0: Have you seen this evolve, Adam, in the last, let's say, 10 years since you've, you've fought this battle and you've been so vocal and so open and so vulnerable with your own personal story? Have you seen things evolve where there's more acceptance, there's more open mind, open hearts to this whole notion of people have struggles and it doesn't have to define who you are.
1: I definitely have seen, uh, you know, significant change and in many different realms. One in the medical field, about a year and a half ago, a, a colleague and I put forth this movement that we've been working on for four years of changing all the credentialing questions at our health center, which is over 40 hospitals and one of the larger ones in the country of removing all questions that ask about mental health history or addiction questions or what medications you're on. And and we're successful in those efforts. And so now, proudly, anybody who comes and is credentialed here at IU Health won't be asked those questions. And so that was a significant win.
0: Congratulations. Yeah,
1: something we're incredibly proud of so that hopefully it opens up doors and avenues for future colleagues to seek help earlier as preventative treatment, um, but also to seek help readily when they're in crisis. So there have been big changes that have come in the last five or 10 years. We we still have a long way to go.
0: I think sometimes we are our own worst critic. When we say things to ourselves or we're kind of consumed by shame or we're feeling like, you know, I'm so imperfect or I'm doing this wrong or, oh, somebody is creating their own story about me. They've never met me. They don't know me, but they've already decided who I am and it gets us down. What would we say to our best friend and how would we treat them? And that's what I've encouraged my kids to do. And that's what I, I have to remind myself of that all the time. So Adam, you have this this part in your book, and I love this so much. And you talk about, I think it was when you were a resident, and just these moments of connection with patients. And you describe them and say, these moments with patients offered a glimpse into what I was hoping for in medicine. And then you continue to write to connect with people, to share in their stories, and to help them navigate their illness. Those are not things we typically think of when we would say, what does a doctor do? So talk to me about that and that the place of that in, in medicine, but also in just how we take care of each other.
1: Yeah. And what's foreign to me is the concept that you articulate of what the normative perception is. Mm-hmm. And I get it. And I intellectually yeah. know that, having seen and lived that at the same time, that's not why I went into medicine in the first place. And so what really fuels me and gets me, you know, up the next day to do what is really difficult and hard work at, at times is you know that experience piece of being able to hopefully help somebody navigate their own life in a little bit better way to you know in the work and palliative care and to hopefully improve somebody's quality of life acknowledging and for both of us that's an uncertain amount of time forward and, and so I view that as a gift. That was even more for me solidified in, in being in, a, in addiction recovery. There's a beautiful parallel for me of mm-hmm. finding this path and finding myself has been that I wrote about in the book. And it's been really just formative to me, this older gentleman in an AA meeting in one of my first ones and sat down and just said, you know, for me to be able to keep my sobriety, I have to give it away to somebody else. And, and he, then he thanked me. And I here I am, you know, days, weeks sober, and I'm like, yeah. why is this man with 35, 40 years of sobriety thanking me? And I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. It took me years to understand that, and that that this wasn't some transactional relationship, but this was
0: mm-hmm.
1: us living in each other's lives and truthfully and and sharing something. And and it's that conversation. It's that moment. Is that you know, experience of impact that that I hope to be able to, to share in, in the patients that I care for.
0: And I think we all have the potential for that. So when my Joseph was diagnosed with Duchenne, I mean, it's a, you know, catastrophic, horrific diagnosis. It's very scary. It's progressive. So it's constantly evolving. And initially, you know, my whole world was, how do I take care of Joseph? How do I save Joseph? What do I, how, how do I manage this walk? And over time, of course, I started Team Joseph, so I had a very structured way of helping other people. But Adam, it's interesting because people will say to me, they're like, you have your own battles with Joseph. Why are you so devoted to helping other people with it? So one of the things I have tried to focus on is if you need a miracle, be a miracle for somebody else. And it's just as fulfilling to have somebody help you as to help somebody else. And I think that... I get the sense from you, and I don't want to say it for you, but I know for myself that the healing that I needed, the help I needed, a lot of it came from helping other people and continues to. And I say to families all the time when we help them with a need and they're just overwhelmed and saying thank you to me. And I'm like, no, 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 you have to understand. I think I get more out of this than I give to you. And you're, you're helping me as well. And I think there's great beauty in that if we can just step a teeny bit outside of our struggle and realize that even though we're suffering, we might be a mess, and we might not know what we're going to do next, but we still have things to offer, and that's just our heart and the connection to other people.
1: That's absolutely so, right. No, I, and I feel the same way. I'm, I'm involved in in these daily recovery meetings, and every morning, the people who are newer in sobriety, you know, list their day counts and how long they've been in sobriety, and and it's not this the culture that's been built in this meeting is is not one of like, oh, you have this many days or one of shame or judgment, or there's some like hierarchy, right? Of this person has 35 years and the other person has yeah. five days. It's thank you for being here because you're giving something of yourself that is teaching us and reminding us of what it was like in the journey seven years ago and what a gift that is. It's so beautiful that the person with a handful of days of sobriety is not only a student, but a teacher.
0: I tell Joseph that all the time. I mean, Joseph's 18 now. He's, he's going to turn 19 really soon, and he was diagnosed when he was five. And I, I've told him from the beginning that he has way more to offer other people than he will need from them. So speaking of that, you have a part in your book, and I've read it so many times, and it's hard for me, it's hard for me to get through saying it out loud, but... You talk about your first mentor, and I think we might think that's a teacher or another physician, but for you, your first true mentor was a little girl named Zoe. Will you share just a little bit about her, you talk about her in the book, and and how she transformed you and what that meant to
1: you? Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to share about uh, her, and you have me, Misty, eyed now, so... um, Zoe was this rambunctious, just beautiful little girl who was going through a a stem cell transplant for a rare autoimmune uh, condition. And, you know, I was a fourth year medical student rotating stem cell transplant units and then in oncology and really had the chance to, to get to know her and her family. And, you know, I was just struck by her ability to maintain and preserve being a child even in the midst of going through unimaginable life events and the pain of of mucositis and still wanting to lay on the ground and play with thomas the train and my own nephew who's now in his 20s and in the active military you know he was a young kid at the time too and he donated his thomas the trains toys to the hospital for me to be able to take to up to her and i didn't share that part in the book you know i just i fell in love with her and her spirit her just Mm -hmm. you know to take on another day and just be a kid and and i learned more from her and in the few months that i had the privilege of being with her than almost you know anything i had ever learned up until that point in time definitely more than in any book or classroom and it was I think now 15 years in reflection, it was teaching me about the power of showing up and doing that, you know, day after day, even to his heart. Mm-hmm. Zoe passed away after complications of her transplant. And, you know, and I carried a, a guilt for a long period in time because I wasn't there when she, when she died. And, and it took a, a lot to sort of have the grace and ability to forgive myself for that going to her her funeral and and being with her family. And it was the first time, you know, as a young 20 year old Mm -hmm. going to a a funeral for a child is, you know, it was a a deep spiritual moment, but it was also just this eye opening of the career path that I chose. And I'm going to need to make myself emotionally available enough for families and for patients on the good days. And the unimaginable as well. And for years and years afterwards, I carried this a picture of her in, in my wallet. And eventually her mom sent me a new one that I have in, in my office now as a reminder of what it can look like when you show up wholeheartedly mm-hmm. for somebody else. And uh, nobody can, can take that away.
0: Thanks, Adam and me. I'm so sorry for... The loss of Zoe, but I am so grateful for that little girl for what she taught you and inspired you to the path to, to take and how you how you operate now in your profession and probably in your personal life based on the, the beautiful, sweet lessons that she didn't even have to try to teach you just by being who she was. Let's talk a little bit about showing up for your patients, because I, I do want us to spend a little bit of time on talking about palliative care. I think there are misperceptions about it, and I think it's such a beautiful part of medicine. What is palliative care?
1: So palliative care really is a, a field of medicine that you know focuses on improving the quality of life for patients and families who, may have life limiting, life threatening medical conditions. And some of that is really tangible, focusing on pain and symptom management, some of it is helping to define goals of medical treatment and, and helping families and patients to weigh the risk and benefits of the next procedure, the next surgery, the next chemotherapy, the next intervention, and whether it aligns with what they're hoping for their life. Oftentimes we get pigeonholed into like, oh, well, you you do end-of-life care or palliative care is only hospice care. So much of it, 80%, is really that relationship building over time, helping families navigate the complexity of chronic medical conditions, these big decisions, and whether it aligns with their lives. Part of my job then as well, and our jobs, are, are to help families navigate those times as well, where towards end of life care and, and hopefully with dignity and grace and respect while also honoring wishes of how that individual wants and wishes to live that time that they have. And, and so, you know, we do that as well. And in, in my profession in pediatrics, that's obviously with children and young adults and their families, uh, mm-hmm. and, and really placing the family and the patient at the center of that and the center of all the care that, that we give.
0: My perception is that palliative care is really holistic in the sense that W-H-O-L-E as in whole, the whole child, and not just the whole child, but the family, the community that you really look at the whole kind of the world that this child lives in and maybe siblings and you're a little bit of like, I call it like the quarterback where you're kind of, you're not necessarily calling all the plays, but you're helping with that discernment process of what does your life look like now? Would that be fair to say?
1: i think that's absolutely right and it's you know including all the spheres of influence in the circles that are important to that individual and to that family so for some families that's a pretty small circle of their nuclear family or one or two people others it really encapsulates their faith community or you know the school community or advocacy work on a larger scale right in a national or international scale so The question should be, who's important to you to be involved in this conversation? And then what's important to you as sort of the centerpieces?
0: So Adam, just so people are clear on this though, palliative care is not interchangeable with hospice. I mean, palliative care does not mean it's the end of the life. This just means we want to have quality of life while we're navigating something. Is that correct? That's
1: absolutely true. Yeah, it's really this like evolution for us in the pediatric world. It's patients that may pass away in their childhood years, where a lot of times the vast majority were just helping families navigate that of living your life well while living with a life-limiting medical condition.
0: So don't be afraid, right, of, of seeking out palliative care and getting the help that you need.
1: We try to put our whole selves into this work and do it as, you know, kindly and compassionately as we can, acknowledging that, you know, some families that we work with are navigating the most difficult times of their entire lives. And so I, I hope that we can, show up with a a kindness to to meet that that space for them
0: yeah and i think you know it's interesting i kind of say this jokingly sometimes but i always say when you get a diagnosis like i mean i'll just use my own example of with joseph with duchenne or if it's you know whatever it is your your sweet 18 month old with you know cancer or anything that is just incredibly heavy and difficult and heartbreaking I think you should get a free pass on, on anything else ever happening in your life, right? Should be the only thing you have to deal with. But as we know it's not. And for so many families, it's like, well, one parent might, you know, have, have depression, or there's other siblings who might have other issues going on, or there might be a job loss, or you know, there's all sorts of things that families deal with and Again, it kind of like you talk a lot about labels that we give to people. I think we start to see them as you know, it's a cancer patient. And Joseph's a Duchenne boy. And I always tell people, I'm like, Joseph's not a Duchenne boy. He's a boy. He has Duchenne, but that's not all he is, and that's not all my family is, and that's not all we navigate. And what what strikes me when you talk about your, I say your profession and your your chosen part of medicine. I look at it for you, Adam, as a calling, just a you know, incredible vocation is I feel like you help people fulfill the goal I had when Joseph was diagnosed. And I right away, I was like, you know what? Joseph's story will not be about a little boy who's dying. His story will be about a little boy who is living because we're all dying. From the minute we're born, we're all, every minute that passes, we're a minute closer to the end of our life. We just don't know when it is. And so I think, well, do I want to dwell in that space or do I want to dwell in, we better make the most of this. Like we better play the heck out of this hand we've been dealt. And I I feel like that's, I feel like that's your role. I I don't know if you're, I don't know if you're good with that job description, but I, I feel like that's what you can help families with. What you do help families with is how do we live this, this situation?
1: You said that so beautifully and I echo everything that you just shared and and for me the you know lens that i come or that i see through to try to achieve those goals that are spot on is one you know being a father myself and you know working in a space where i do see children that pass away maybe not every day but several times a week and it awards me this perspective to come home with gratitude for this moment, mm. this day, this hug, this push on the swing set. And I take these mental snapshots in my head where I'm like very intentional of like the joy or smile that I see my five-year-old when I'm pushing them in the backyard on the swing. Right To me, it, it's gifted my life with this opportunity to make the most of those moments and to appreciate them as they're happening. And the second being then through the lens of, of recovery is life that I didn't even know that I was was possible of having and that I almost didn't have. And so walking now with this life, really, that is a gift. And so because of that, then I hope that I could be able to use that so that other people can frame their life in the same way as you beautifully described.
0: Absolutely. You know, what just struck me when you said that. There's an irony, but also I think just a beauty in the full circle of the fact that, you know, and you talk a lot a lot about this in your book, but the very profession, medicine that contributed to your isolation, your depression, your fear to get help, that very profession also sounds to me like contributed to your healing and to your perspective and to your joy in life.
1: Yeah. It's absolutely True. There was a little bit of a career change. I went from being an oncologist that did a lot of studying and research and into how cancer cells worked and working in a lab and spending that time to really quite tangibly in my first year or two of recovery, you know, transitioning into palliative care work, which was much of, you know, is more about how do we live a life well? How do we help each other live a life well. And so it was no coincidence that those coincided together. And where I've found, I hope, as you share a calling, but I also hope that it's an alignment, right, of how I wanna live as a person, how I wanna raise my kids, how I wanna be with my family in all aspects, you know, that those align and how I work yeah. as a medical professional.
0: It's a great point. A, you're the same person at your home, on the expressway, in a restaurant, in your place of work. It's it's who you are. You can be that person everywhere. And so, Adam, I want to ask you. This is about, of course, palliative care, but it's also just about being good people. Like, how do, how can we be good to each other? How can we, in in such a complex world with you know so much chaos, especially now, the last two years have been exceptional. How can we be there for each other?
1: Mm. If I knew the answer, then uh, this podcast will, I think, go viral really quick. But, um,
0: <laughs> Let's do yeah. it. You
1: no, know, I just a few weeks ago. One, I'm a big Ted Lasso fan, so if anybody watches Ted Lasso, that's been like a big motivator for me the last uh, few years. But so I have this sign over over my desk that says "Be curious, not judgmental," and that always it, it's the first thing that I see when I come into the office and the last thing I see before I leave to go see patients or before I go home at night. And I try to keep that curiosity of mm-hmm. not making a snap judgment or being reactionary. My character defects of somebody who has a history of addiction are to do that at times. And so, you know, I'm trying to ground myself in that. Being able to I think give back to other people who are in early recovery has been a big one for me to to ground me. But the truth is, you know, I'm also just figuring it out every day. Yeah. As, as I go too. I mean, I still get angry with people. I make bad decisions. I you know, I mean sure. I'm deep you know,
0: well, I'm glad to know you're human. Yeah, That's I mean, reassuring. Even, you give the rest of us permission to be human as well,
1: like, right? I mean, my authenticity is to say that like I mess up a lot and You know, I say the wrong things or I, you know, send a crappy email to somebody. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) part of it then is to to own that and then make amends and then hopefully to move forward with progress and not perfection. Right. And I don't know the simple answer other than to say that I have the opportunity to try my best today.
0: I think that's beautiful. I love how you said, be curious. My dad always said, listen more than you speak. People just want to be heard. And I think be curious, like you say, is so important. Thank you, Ted Lasso. But just about the whole notion of you don't know people's story and be curious and lead with an open heart. That's pretty powerful. So, Adam, I want to ask you, as we wrap up here, in a general sense been through recovery, but also I look at that as a lot of healing. And you work in medicine. What does healing mean? What does healing look like? Hmm.
1: It's a great question. For me right now, my conceptualization for healing in my own personal life has been this search for peace that I can forgive myself and let go of some of the things that I've long standing had guilt or shame. Mm -hmm. about that move forward and acknowledge that I did the best with who with what I had at the time and the moment in my life and and sometimes that's day by day then trying to search for you know a greater peace within myself about that and so you know from the professional lens for me it's then asking the question well what does healing look like for you because I'll share one striking example. Years ago, how a young adult patient had a progressive cancer diagnosis and ultimately knew that that cancer was not curable. They had been living with it for some amount of time, several years. And as that patient experienced a significant decline in their quality of life and their ability to do the things that they wanted to do, the oncologist came and sat down with them and said, Oh, your recent scans are back. And this oncologist had a smile on her face and joy in her heart and sharing. And the scans are stable. Mm -hmm. There was a long pause. The young adult patient looked up and said, so you're saying I have to live like this longer. And it was this space where the presumption mismatched with the perception. And so for me, once again, be curious and asking the question of what healing looks like to you.
0: I agree. That is so beautiful. I want to tell you that it's so parallel to that. I had Joseph at a doctor appointment this past summer, and a friend texted me, and he said, I'm going to pray for you guys in this appointment today. What would you like me to pray for? And that took my breath away. Because we so routinely say, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, I'm praying for you. And I've thought it before, but I've never articulated it where I'm like, what do you mean you're praying for me? How do you know what I want you to ask the big guy for? (laughs) What do you mean? And it was the first time anybody ever said to me, what would you like me to pray for? And it was a turning point for me. And it was just that stimulus of that person asking. And What I've said now since is I used to pray for Joseph to be healed. I literally healed physically of his disease, and I used to pray for the miracle. And what I've realized over time is Joseph is the miracle. Like The miracle is right here. He's the miracle. What I want to pray for is grace and acceptance and peace and strength. But I don't think we always have to focus on that we are so flawed that we need to be fixed, right? And what do I communicate to my son when I'm constantly focused on a cure or a treatment? Like he's got to be fixed. I'm like, no, you're pretty awesome just the way you are. We have a great life. Like we laugh a lot. We have a really happy household. We live. So I love that you just brought that up because that's very recent for me that I've started to think about what is healing. One of my favorite quotes and I have it on the wall. Um, a sticky note in my kitchen. It's on a little cupboard, and it's Leonard Cohen, singer and, and poet. And you know, one of his famous lines is, "There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in." And sometimes I joke, and I'm like, well, "I must be lit up like the Fourth of July because <laughs> I had a lot of cracks in my heart." But I really believe that. I just, um, I don't know. I think I, I just want to say to you that all the, all the struggle and the suffering you've been through, all the cracks, like you are. You are a light. That is just such a gift to everybody you touch in your medical practice. But just the ripple effect of your message right now is overwhelming and such a gift. And I am I am so humbled to just get to have this conversation with you.
1: I really appreciate it. I think you asked me in the in the intro before we were recording sort of why I choose to do some of the, the podcasts that, that I do. And your last story is a testament to that. And I, I shared that because I get to learn from other people just as much as I'm you know, able to, to share. And so, you know, you taught me something today of, of, with that beautiful story of what you know, what exactly would you like me to pray for? I love that. And I'm going to take that with me. So thank you for that gift. And thanks for the time today. It was really lovely talking to you.
0: Thanks, Adam. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Making Our Way. If you enjoyed this, please share it and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. Production support for Making Our Way was generously provided by PTC Therapeutics, Pfizer, and Sarepta Therapeutics. Thank you for making this possible. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Team Joseph is doing to support the Duchenne community and to make the world a better place, please visit us at teamjoseph.org.